to the first session of the Library Aesthetics Forum this academic year. Um, as always, we are grateful to the British Society of Aesthetics for their continued support of this series. We're delighted today to have Samantha Mathera, who is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Harvard University. She did her PhD at UC Riverside and then taught briefly at UC Santa Cruz before moving to Harvard. She has a book on Kassir coming out in the Routledge Philosopher series and is working on a book on Kant's philosophy of imagination. And her talk today is entitled, make sure I get the name right, Edith Landman Kalischer on Aesthetic Demarcation and Normativity. So over to you, Samantha. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew, for inviting me, and thank you to all of you for coming. So I am talking about somebody that most of you probably have not heard of, who I also had not heard of until recently, but she's an early phenomenologist. She's working in value theory, and particularly in aesthetic value, and she's really fantastic. So this is part of my campaign to put her on the map. So if you're interested in more of her pieces, come talk to me. I will send them to you. We can talk about them. If you're interested in translating any of these pieces, also let me know. So what I want to do today is talk about Two of the really perennial questions that keep us estheticians busy. So the question of aesthetic demarcation and aesthetic normativity. So as I put it on your handout, the demarcation question is, in general, what, if anything, distinguishes the aesthetic domain from the cognitive or moral domains? And the normativity question is, how are we to understand aesthetic normativity? My aim in this paper is to argue that Lennon Kalischer or LK, as I will call her, and I encourage you to do the same. It rolls off the tongue very nicely. When I read LK offers a really compelling alternative to the more dominant accounts on offer right now. And those dominant accounts I take to be the hedonist model and the Kantian model. And I think that she defends a theory of demarcation and normativity that's going to avoid some of the problems that comes up for these accounts. And in so doing, I think that she gives this really compelling cognitivist account of aesthetic evaluation, objectivist account of what beauty is, and a really subtle account of aesthetic normativity. So this is what I want to work through today. But first, a little bit of background on LK. So she's a German Jewish phenomenologist. She was born in 1877. She dies in 1951. She did her undergraduate work in Berlin. She worked with Zimmel. And then she went to Zurich to get her PhD, which is one of the more women-friendly universities at the time. And so she got her PhD uh, with somebody who was a student of Wilhelm Wundt, who was one of the kind of founding fathers of experimental psychology. So Landon Kalischer's approach to phenomenology is much more friendly to the results of empirical psychology than somebody like Husserl is going to be later. So Kalischer is representing this kind of non-transcendental approach to phenomenology. I said before, her first pieces are really in accounts of value in general and aesthetic value in particular. I've listed some of her main pieces from the early 1900s on the handout. And then in the 1920s, she wrote this really fantastic book that gives a phenomenology of cognition in particular. That comes out in 1923. And then her last major work came out posthumously in 1952. It's uh, returning to some of these issues in the doctrine of the beautiful. So what we're going to do today is we're going to focus on the second piece that I've listed on Hannah. I'm not going to torture you with my German. Uh, but it's about the cognitive value of aesthetic judgments a comparison between sensible and value judgments. So what I want to do is 
section two is kind of lay out the debate surrounding demarcation and normativity. Look at the hedonic picture, look at the Kantian picture before we then move into LK's defense of her own position. So like, back to the, oh, it should be a demarcation question uh, instead of a normativity question. The demarcation question again is what, if anything, distinguishes the aesthetic domain from the cognitive moral domains. And I think that we can break this down into two different sub-questions. So the first is what I'm calling the object question. And that's a question about what objects belong to each of these domains. So the traditional account is that beauty belongs to the aesthetic domain, good to the moral domain, and the true to the cognitive domain. There's another demarcation question, which I'm calling the engagement question. The engagement question asks after how is it that we engage in each of these domains? So what sort of affects or responses or activities or practices are involved in agents operating in each of these domains? And then you can, of course, ask, are those similar across domains or different across domains? Moving now to the real normativity question, uh, what is the nature of aesthetic normativity? Here again, I'm going to break it down into two sub-questions. So the first is what I call the orientation question. And the orientation question asks, what do aesthetic norms orient us towards? So do they orient us towards objects? Do they orient us towards others? Do they orient us towards ourselves? And then the second normativity question is what I'm calling the source question. So what is the source of aesthetic norms and what makes them binding for us? So what I want to do now is think about how the hedonist, the Kantian, and then eventually LK is going to answer each of these different sub-questions. So beginning with the hedonist, I take the basic thesis of hedonism to be that aesthetic engagement is grounded in pleasure. Of course, we could refine that in all sorts of various ways, but that's the, the, the heart behind the hedonist approach. So if I'm a hedonist and I'm sorting through the demarcation questions, it seems like if I'm answering the object question, what I'm going to claim is that aesthetic engagement takes as its object that which is pleasing or has the capacity to please. Depends on how you want to cash it out. And as for the engagement question goes, the hedonist is going to say that aesthetic engagement is a matter of feeling pleasure. So it seems like this way of glossing the object and engagement questions is certainly going to drive a wedge between the hedonist and, sorry, between the hedonist account of the aesthetic domain and the cognitive domain. It doesn't seem that we need to feel pleasure in order to recognize that it is gray outside, but we do need pleasure to feel that, I don't know, the autumn leaves are beautiful, something like that. So it doesn't seem like cognition requires pleasure in the way that the aesthetic does on the hedonic account. As far as the moral domain goes, it just depends on what kind of hedonist you are, right? So you could be a moral hedonist and so you can see pleasure as something constant across the aesthetic and moral domains, or you could not. So I'm just going to leave that aside for the moment. Okay, on to the normativity question. For the hedonist, it looks like Aesthetic norms are going to orient us towards objects that have the capacity to make us feel pleasure. So we have reason to go experience those objects if they're going to bring about pleasure. So as I'm in Massachusetts, if, I don't know, autumn makes me feel pleasure, I have reason to get my Subaru and drive around the Massachusetts countryside if I was so inclined. Uh, as far as the source 
question goes, for the hedonist, it is going to be pleasure that is the source of aesthetic norms. And what makes an aesthetic norm binding for me is my commitment to feeling some sort of pleasure. Turning now to the Kantian picture, this will be the top. Oh, no. We have to object before we can move on. So one of the classic objections to hedonism, to this account of demarcation and normativity, is the objection of over-evaluation. So as I put it in your handout, if pleasure is what gives us reason to pursue aesthetic engagement, doesn't it also give us reason to over-evaluate every object we come across? That is, to feel more pleasure in it than it is due. So when I'm driving around the Massachusetts countryside, it seems like if I'm really committed to pleasure, I'm just going to be way too enthusiastic about every single oak tree that I see and every single leaf. I would feel the most pleasure if I over-evaluate everything that I come across. And that seems problematic, right? We want there to be some sort of constraint on how we aesthetically evaluate things, that there are certain moments when it is appropriate to feel all of that enthusiasm, and other moments when it is certainly not appropriate to feel all of that enthusiasm. So the objection of over-evaluation might give us some pause over the hedonic account more generally. So if we turn now to the Kantian picture, I take the basic thesis to be for Kant that aesthetic judgment is grounded in the disinterested pleasure we feel as a result of the free play of cognitive capacities that we share in common with all humans. If the Kantian then tries to address the demarcation question with respect to the object side of the demarcation question, the Kantian is going to argue that, aesthetic, that aesthetic engagement takes as its object the beautiful or the sublime as that which brings about free play in us and gives us that disinterested feeling of pleasure. So the Kantian is going to have pleasure in the story, but it's going to be a very unique kind of disinterested pleasure that has this shared human ground that we can all partake in. And it seems like it's very clear that Kant is going to be distinguishing the beautiful in this sense from the good and whatever the object of cognition is, which Kant will gloss in terms of nature, I suppose. Now, as far as the engagement question goes, Kant is also very clear that aesthetic judgments are neither cognitive nor moral judgments. So as you see in passage one, this is from the outside of the analytic of the beautiful. Kant says, quote, in order to decide whether or not something is beautiful, we do not relate the representation by means of understanding to the object for cognition, but rather to the subject and its feeling of pleasure or displeasure. The judgment of taste is therefore not a cognitive judgment, but is rather aesthetic. So on Kant's view, a cognitive judgment is something that is oriented towards an object, whereas an aesthetic judgment is grounded in the subject's feeling of pleasure. So an aesthetic judgment is not a cognitive judgment. So too, Kant is going to deny that an aesthetic judgment is a moral judgment because he thinks that moral judgments involve interest, right? We care about the good, we're committed to the existence of the good. And that sort of interested engagement is precisely what is not going on in the aesthetic domain. So Kant, again, is going to be distinguishing aesthetic judgments from moral judgments. As far as the normativity question goes, Unlike the hedonist who's really directing us towards the objects that are supposed to bring about pleasure in us, 
Consequent of aesthetic normativity, at least as it's traditionally construed, is much more intersubjective in orientation. So on Kant's account of aesthetic norms, the aesthetic norms that we engage in are demands that we place on others to agree with our judgment. So Kant really cashes out aesthetic norms in terms of this demand to universality or the agreement of other people. So you see this in passage two. Kant says, if someone pronounces that something is beautiful, then he expects the very same satisfaction of others. He judges not merely for himself, but for everyone, and speaks of beauty as if it were a property of things. Hence, he says that the thing is beautiful, and he does not count on the agreement of others, but rather demands it from them. He rebukes them if they judge otherwise, and denies that they have taste. You, you get the flavor. We don't need to go on to passage passage two is enough. So turning now to Kant's account of the source of aesthetic normativity, I think this is a very difficult question to answer, and I don't think that people really come down one way or the other. So there's some people who think that aesthetic norms stem from moral norms in Kant for some, in some sort of sense. So if you think of um, people like Anthony Seville or um, Kamal's work, they're going to uh, track aesthetic norms back to moral norms, or you could think that, no, actually Kant doesn't trace them back to moral norms per se, and so then what are you going to do? Well, maybe you think that there's some sort of like norm of universality in Kant, that we have reason to engage with universal things. Um, another route that you could go is uh, connect normativity to autonomy. So insofar as aesthetic judgments involve an exercise of autonomy, you might think that that's the relevant source of normativity. Um, or you think that Kant's a hedonist about this, that the reason that we should engage in um, aesthetic practices is because it will make us feel better. I'm not going to settle this question here one way or the other. It's murky at best. So as far as objections to Kantianism goes, I mean, they're legion, but uh, the upshot is that Kant's account of aesthetic judgment seems far too universalistic. So the idea that when I judge this autumn kissed oak leaf to be beautiful doesn't seem like I'm demanding that every other human being feel the same. I mean, that seems like uh, really going too far with the character of our intersubjective aesthetic engagement. I mean, I might invite you to come experience the oak tree with me, but, but the idea that I would demand it of you and rebuke you if you're not going along with me, um, not only does this seem uh, to extend aesthetic norms too far, it also seems, seems that we would have to become very bossy to become this kind of aesthetic judge. So Kant's universalism seems problematic to a lot of people. So with these sorts of accounts in place, what we might want is against the hedonist some way to put restrictions on what counts as an appropriate or inappropriate way to be engaging with aesthetic value or beauty. And against a Kantian, we might want some kind of account of normativity that drops the demand for universality, but still has some sort of robust account of the norms that are guiding our aesthetic practices. So what I'm going to argue in the rest of the paper is that LK does just this. So in her article on the cognitive value of aesthetic judgments, she answers the demarcation question by saying that aesthetic judgments are a species of cognitive judgments. And she answers the normative question by dropping the demand for universality 
and instead teasing out an account of aesthetic normativity from an objectivist account of beauty and a cognitive account of aesthetic judgment. So that's just the, the preview. We're going to fill out all of the details as we move forward now. So in this article, moving on to section three, she sets it up with two guiding questions that she wants to deal with in this article. So the first is what she calls the general question. Quote, whether an aesthetic judgment in general is a cognitive judgment in Kant's sense. Going on to page three. The second question is what she calls the special question. And this is whether and to what extent aesthetic judgments can have uber-subjective validity. So by an aesthetic judgment, what Lennon Kalischer has in mind is a judgment that involves, quote, the immediate relation of an object to the subject and her feeling of pleasure or displeasure. So on her view, an aesthetic judgment does involve a feeling of pleasure in relation to the object or displeasure in relation to the object. But she's clear that she's thinking about this pleasure in Kantian terms as disinterested. So she says, quote, it's a pure disinterested judgment of taste that she has in mind, which is free of any desire or interest. So that's what she has in mind by aesthetic judgment. As far as a cognitive judgment in Kant's sense, um, as if that's easy to pin down, uh, she glosses it as a judgment that, quote, designates a property of the object. So with the general question, when she's asking, are aesthetic judgments cognitive judgments or not, we can think about this as a version of the demarcation question, right? She's framing it in terms of judgment because she's thinking of aesthetic engagement in terms of judgment. So she's asking, are aesthetic judgments cognitive judgments or not? And then with the special question, I take it to be a version of the normativity question. So she's asking, do aesthetic judgments lay claim on anything beyond the subject and her immediate response to the object? So does the aesthetic judgment lay claim on the object itself or on others or not? And what we're going to see is LK is going to answer yes to both questions. So yes, aesthetic judgments are cognitive, and yes, aesthetic judgments have uber-subjective validity and a way to be detailed. So let's start by her answer to the general question. So section four, then I tell her on the demarcation question, aesthetic judgments as cognitive judgments. The strategy that LK uses in this article is a secondary quality analogy. You might be familiar with this from John McDowell's version of it almost a decade later, uh, but she is defending the secondary quality analogy in 1905. And what she's gonna argue is that Beauty and ugliness are to be understood as secondary, or as she prefers, sensible qualities of the object. That's the analogy. Uh, and you see this in passage four, where she says, quote, beauty is to be re regarded as a property of things in the same sense as sensible qualities. And a position that she defends throughout the piece is that the similarity between beauty, ugliness, and sensible qualities is that they're both dispositional properties. So on her view, beauty and, say, color are both properties of things. So they're part of, in McDowell's words, McDowell's words, the fabric of the world. But those properties are ones that are disposed to bring about a certain response in subjects. So even though the properties are objective insofar as they belong to objects, they're subjective in the sense that they depend on subjects' responses. 
So in the case of sensible judgment, a judgment about, say, color, LK claims that there's a sensible quality in the object, say, the red of the oak leaf, and that correlates to some sort of sensation in the human mind. And there's some sort of constant relation or a lawful dependence between that color and the sensation in the human mind. And in the aesthetic case, you get a similar parallel holding. So you have beauty or ugliness, which are in the object, and then the corresponding mental state is a feeling of pleasure or displeasure, and there's some sort of relation, constant relation of lawful dependence between the two. So, uh, in short, right, she takes beauty to be like color insofar as their dispositional properties. Now, once you've gone so far as to take beauty and something like color to actually be part of the world, LK thinks that this opens up space to recognize that sensible judgments and aesthetic judgments are in fact species of cognition. So remember that on review, a cognitive judgment is one that designates or discloses a property of the object. And now that we see that things like beauty and color are properties of the object, this opens up space for actually us to have cognition of those properties through sensible or aesthetic means. And so what she argues is that the sensation that we have in the sensible case and the feeling of pleasure or displeasure that we have in the aesthetic case actually become the vehicle for cognizing the relevant property. So she talks about, as I put it on the handout, cognition, quote, through perception in the sensible case and, quote, through feeling in the aesthetic case. So what this means is that LK is a pluralist about cognition. So she thinks, yes, we could have cognition through concepts, but she thinks that there's other species of cognition. So you can have cognition through sensation. You can cognize the redness of the tree, the leaf, through the sensation of redness. And so too, you can have cognition through feeling. So I can cognize the beauty of the autumn-kissed oak tree through the feeling of pleasure that I have. And she's very clear that she is rejecting the Leibnizian-Wolfian picture according to which sensible cognition is something that's confused and only needs concepts to come along and make it more clear and distinct. Okay, thinks that that's the wrong picture. There are just different kinds of cognition and sensible judgments and aesthetic judgments involve their own sui generis kinds of cognition through sensation and through feeling respectively. So with all of this on board, we can now think about how LK answers the demarcation question. So with respect to the object question, LK is going to argue that the aesthetic domain is populated by beautiful and ugly objects, where this beauty and ugliness are to be understood as dispositional properties which stand in an essential relation to the feeling of pleasure or displeasure of a subject. As far as the engagement question goes, she's going to argue that aesthetic judgments are a kind of cognition or a kind of cognitive judgment through feeling. So in effect, right, she does not think that aesthetic judgments are distinct in kind from cognitive judgments. Aesthetic judgments are just a species of cognitive judgments. And like cognitive judgments, right, aesthetic judgments are oriented towards properties of the world. So moving now on to the aesthetic normativity question, we're going to spend sections five and six trying to think through her account of aesthetic normativity. And it's a bit more complicated 
than was her answer to the demarcation question. So what we're going to do in section five is try and think through what her analysis of validity is in the case of aesthetic judgments before in section six turning, on to, turning it over to her count of normativity. So section five, LK on the validity of aesthetic judgments. So in general, LK thinks that quant judgments, aesthetic judgments, are to be held to the standards of judgments more Generally, so if you are doing logic and you're uncovering certain standards that you think any judgment has to be beholden to, she thinks that those standards are going to also apply in the case of aesthetic judgments because they are, in fact, judgments. But she distinguishes between two different kinds of aesthetic judgment. So the first kind is what she calls the subjective form of an aesthetic judgment, and the subjective form takes shape as, I like X or X pleases me. And the objective form of an aesthetic judgment is going to be, by contrast, X is beautiful or X is ugly. And insofar as these both amount to judgments, both the subjective and the objective forms are kinds of judgment, she thinks that there's going to be standards of judgment that hold for each. And following Wilhelm Wundt in his tone psychology, LK is going to gloss these standards in terms of the notion of reliability or superlysic type. So starting with the analysis of the subjective form of judgment, in effect, she thinks that the subjective form of judgment is a kind of inner perception. So you're perceiving your own feelings of pleasure or displeasure, right? So when I'm driving through the Massachusetts countryside uh, and I am just feeling indifferent, Right? That is an inner perception that I had of my own feeling of indifference. Now, it might seem as if our feelings are just given to us with some sort of evidence or absolute certainty, so you couldn't possibly be wrong when you're engaged in inner perception. But LK thinks that that's wrong. She thinks that we can misperceive our inner states, and we do so, in fact, quite frequently. So she thinks that often we might be distracted, or we might be moody, or we might be projecting our own issues into something else that's going on on the inside. And when we're engaged in these sorts of behaviors, we're in fact obfuscating from ourselves what our real effective <coughs> state is. We're going to talk more about how exactly this can happen in a minute. But she thinks the fact that we can actually go wrong in the subjective form of judgment, I can judge that, the, that I feel pleasure in the autumn-kissed oak tree when in fact I do not, and I can be wrong for a variety of reasons. And the fact that I can be wrong means that there's some standards that I'm beholden to. And she describes these as the standards of subjective reliability. So there's some sort of proper condition I need to be in in order to correctly perceive my own inner states, and so the standards of subjective reliability demand that I be in that proper condition. The reason that I am only sketching this idea is because it's not until she gives us her account of objective reliability that she really teases out what those standards of subjective reliability are. So I just want to flag that she does think that we're beholden to standards even when we judge I like the oak tree. Um, and she's going to tell us what the proper condition is that we need to be in with respect to them. 
So moving on to the objective form of judgment, right, that the autumn oak tree is beautiful, here she thinks that there's standards of objective reliability that we're beholden to, but she'll also gloss these standards of objective reliability in terms of objective validity, truth, or correctness. So she seems to be using all of these interchangeably. Um, if you have strong opinions about 19th century logic and how these terms should be used uh, and what the difference is, please come talk to me. But um, she's just going to run them together, so I am going to run them together too. So in order to analyze the objective reliability of an aesthetic judgment, she adopts this two-pronged strategy. So the first thing that she does is she analyzes conditions in which we fail to meet these standards, namely the conditions of aesthetic illusion. And we're going to find that these conditions of aesthetic illusion bleed over into the case of subjective reliability too. So when you're suffering from an aesthetic illusion, you're just as liable to get the object wrong as you're to get your own feeling of pleasure wrong. And then the second thing that she does is she details the criteria for an objectively reliable judgment on the basis of standards that hold for any objectively valid judgment. So let's begin with our discussion of aesthetic illusion and the proper condition that we're supposed to be in for aesthetic judgment. So in her analysis of aesthetic illusion, she argues that we can suffer psychological, physiological, and physical illusions when we're engaged in aesthetic judgment. And when this happens, we think that we're making an aesthetic judgment, but in fact we're not. So remember again that on her view, an aesthetic judgment is something that involves an immediate relation to feeling a pleasure or displeasure in the object, and it's supposed to be disinterested and without desire. So she thinks a lot of time, we think that we're making an aesthetic judgment. We think that we're judging that the oak tree is beautiful, but in fact, something else is going on. You're moody, you're distracted, you're projecting, so on and so forth. So to just give you a flavor of what she says about these illusions, uh, when it comes to a psychological illusion, she thinks that we confuse a judgment about something extra aesthetic with the judgment about the aesthetic. So one of the examples that she uses is when you confuse your judgment about an artist with a judgment about the work of art. So I don't know if you're listening to um, Kanye West's Life of Pablo and you um, declare it to be ugly, it may be the case that in fact the object of your judgment is not the life of Pablo at all, but it is Kanye West himself. So she thinks this happens frequently, that we judge the artist under the cover of a judgment of a work of art. But she thinks, again, a true, proper aesthetic judgment has to be about the object itself, not about the artist. So she thinks that this can happen when we confuse content and form. So by content here, she has in mind like what it is that the object is representing. So take Lolita as a classical example. Right, so the content of the book is about pedophilia. So you might condemn the book as ugly on the basis of your condemnation of pedophilia, but here it seems like you're not judging the form of Lolita itself. Instead, you're making a mistake by taking, by um, presenting your judgment about pedophilia under the cover of your judgment about Lolita. So those are some psychological illusions. 
physiological illusions happen when our makeup, so our affects, our dispositions, our commitments, color our apprehension of the object. So, um, for example, you might be a gloomy sort of person. And so when you're such gloomy sorts of persons, you might really be into emo. And you might be like, ah, yeah, emo. It's really, really beautiful. But what's going on there is really, it's just self-serving with your gloominess. So emo, in most cases, is not in fact beautiful, but you're taking it to be beautiful because you're just a gloomy kind of person. Another kind of physiological illusion that she talks about is when your taste has been adapted to one particular form of art. So if all you ever do is listen to 19th century opera, and you're like, oh, this is so beautiful, and then you listen to some hip-hop, you might not be able to pick up on the beauty of the hip-hop, and you might actually declare it to be ugly, but that's because your senses have fully adapted to 19th century opera aesthetics. <clears throat> Wagnerians out there in the room, you hear me. So uh, the last sort of physiological illusion that it might be worth mentioning is that sometimes we're biased by our commitments, right? So our political commitments, our moral commitments, our individual commitments, our aesthetic commitments, right? All of these might be prejudicing us in how we judge or work So when we take it to be beautiful or when we take it to be ugly, in fact, that is just a manifestation of our own commitment and not truly responsive to the value of the work of art. Okay, last kind of illusion that she talks about is a physical illusion. So in a physical illusion, what happens is that we misinterpret the physical object that is given to us in perception. So think about the sensible case with the stick in the water. There's a certain amount of physical information that you then interpret the wrong way, and that interpretation gives rise to the illusion. So too, in the case of aesthetic judgments, she's saying sometimes we misinterpret the physical information that we're given, and that can also lead to some sort of aesthetic illusions. So um, we have, for example, certain associative patterns. So um, suppose that I associate, I don't know, pears with my grandmother, right? So then when I'm looking at Cezanne's pears, I may be like, wow, this is so beautiful. But in fact, what's going on there, my response is tracking not the object itself, Let's pretend it's not. Uh, so not the object itself, but what it's tracking is my associative pattern. Or the same thing can happen with memory, right? The pleasure that we're deriving isn't from the object itself, it's just from memories that get brought to life in virtue of the physical traits of the object. So all of these cases are cases of aesthetic illusion in which we, make, we think that we're making an aesthetic judgment, but in fact, we're not. Now, in Elke's analysis, the source of failing to make an aesthetic judgment in each of these cases is a result of us not being in the proper aesthetic condition to be making these aesthetic judgments. So on Elke's view, we have something that she calls an aesthetic organ, uh, which she defines as, quote, the sum of mental activities which work together to bring about the aesthetic impression. So these activities include a whole suite of different capacities that go into our aesthetic engagement with art. So these are going to include perceptual capacities, they're also going to include representational capacities, and they're going to include affective capacities as well. I'm happy to talk about them more um, in Q&A, but that's enough for now. And she thinks that in order to be in the proper condition, 
these capacities have to be tuned into the beauty or the ugliness of the work of art. Right? They need to be tuned into the dispositional property of the object in order to be feeling the right sort of feeling in response to those objects. And so she thinks that in order to be this proper condition, what we need is aesthetic education. So she says, look, we need to exercise those various capacities, and we need some kind of systematic development and education of those capacities to be able to be in a position where you don't come under aesthetic illusions in either the subjective or the objective domain. So she thinks it takes work to be in this proper condition, to be able to really figure out what's going on inside of you. I mean, this is the point of therapy in lots of ways. Um, and we also need to have this sort of education to really be tuned into the beauty or ugliness that is out there in the world. So as I said, the second component of her account of the objective reliability or objective validity of aesthetic judgments turns on analysis of what are the criteria for any objectively valid judgment, and then let's just apply those criteria to um, aesthetic judgment. So in general, she thinks that any objectively valid judgment has to meet two criteria. So first, the judgment has to agree with the formal claims of logic. So if you have contradictory judgment, then it's uh, not going to be objectively valid. Second, she says that an objectively valid judgment has to involve, quote, agreement, what I'm showing, with other judgments. And she spends a lot of time detailing what exactly this agreement involves. So as you see on the top of page five, she says, an objectively valid aesthetic judgment can agree or fail to agree with, one, judgments of the same individual about the same object at another time and in different circumstances, two, judgments of the same individual about other objects, three, judgments of other human beings, and four, judgments which generally concern objects, especially through scientific representations. So I'm gonna focus for the most part on criteria one and three, because I think that they're gonna really help elucidate her analysis of aesthetic normativity. But again, if you wanna talk about criteria two and four, I'm happy to do so in Q&A. So let's start with the first kind of agreement, judgment of the same individual about the same object at another time and in different circumstances. So if I, if I judge Tippi Hedren's green suit from the birds to be beautiful, in order for that to be an objectively valid judgment, I need to remain consistent in that judgment. So every time I watch the movie, or if I'm lucky enough to go see the piece displayed in a museum, right, I need to remain consistent in my judgment that it is beautiful if it's to count as an objectively valid aesthetic judgment. So, this is what she articulates in passage five. She says, it is not just a single feeling of pleasure, and instead a whole series of impressions received from the object in different conditions that is decisive for an objective aesthetic judgment. Now notice that she's putting a diachronic requirement on objectively valid aesthetic judgment. So she says, 
a one-off take, a one-off feeling of pleasure in relation to an object is not enough to ground an objectively valid aesthetic judgment. You need to engage with that object over time in order to be in the right position. So it can't just be, I see Tim Kempton's green suit once, that's not enough to judge that it's objectively beautiful, but now that I've seen it enough and obsessed about it, right, I, I'm in a position to declare it to be objectively beautiful, and it is. Um, I'm going to skip over criteria two. Um, criteria two is really relevant to um, assigning a degree of beauty to objects in a comparative situation. So I might think like, oh, your suit, it's pretty beautiful, but Tiffy's suit is really beautiful. Uh, so comparative judgments uh, are going to be relevant there, but set those aside. Let's go to inner subjective agreement. Right? And this is going to be the place where she's really going to engage with the Kantian picture. So when we claim that an aesthetic judgment needs to agree with the judgment of other human beings, should this be glossed in terms of the demand for universality? LK says, absolutely not. So here are various reasons that she worries about glossing intersubjective aesthetic demands in terms of universality. So first of all, she says that it's not necessarily a case of universality and objectively, objectivity go hand in hand. So sometimes she thinks that you can have a universal judgment that's not objective, and sometimes you can have an objective judgment that is not universal. So she uses as her example, um, a cellar, a basement, is going to feel colder to us in the summer than it does in the winter. That's universal, but objectively the temperature is the same. So there you have a universal but not objective judgment. As far as an objective but not universal judgment, she says there's certain overtones in music that only really musically excellent people can hear. So those are, their judgments are not universal, nevertheless they're objective. So universality and objectivity, she thinks, don't necessarily go hand in hand. But even if we concede that there are some universal aesthetic judgments, she thinks that these are going to happen only in really rare cases. So there may be some qualities, like symmetry, that appeal to the human organization in general, but she thinks that these are rare cases. So for the most part, she says that there's, quote, large divergence in people's aesthetic sensibilities due both to their individual makeup and to their cultural makeup. So we should expect not universal, but rather, not universal agreement, but rather disagreement in the aesthetic case for these reasons. But she goes on, hammering the nail in the coffin. Uh, she says, even if universal agreement were a fact, it would not serve as a viable criterion of, a, of objective aesthetic judgments. So first of all, she says, look, if there is absolute agreement, then no exception could ever be given. And in that case, the criterion is pointless because nobody would ever fail to live up to the criterion. But if instead, by universal agreement, we just mean like, there's lots of agreement, then she thinks if we use that as a criterion, then it's actually going to be a means of coercion. Or in her words, it's going to be means of, quote, violence against the minority through the majority. So that's going to be a really vicious way that this criterion of universality is going to play out. So for all of these reasons, she thinks that it calls for a, quote, decisive rejection of the criterion of universal agreement more generally. So what's the alternative? So she doesn't develop this as fully as we might like in this piece, but she says that we could develop 
another concept of truth, which actually tracks, quote, very differently organized beings. And if we do index aesthetic agreement to these different kinds of aesthetic organization, she thinks that we also need to acknowledge that there may be cases where you cannot understand somebody else's aesthetic judgment. If they have such a different makeup venue, you might not actually be able to understand their position. So I'm going to skip criteria four, um, criterion four, but we can come back to it if you want, because I want to press on to her account of normativity. So we have this overarching picture of the validity of aesthetic judgments in place. So we know that they're supposed to be subjectively reliable, and they're supposed to also be objectively reliable, and that they're being held to the standards not only of us having to be in the proper condition to be responding and assessing our response in the right sort of way, that we're being held to the standards that any objectively valid judgments are being held to when we're making an aesthetic judgment. So what kind of account of normativity really falls out of LK's picture? So this is section six, LK on the normativity question. So let's begin with the orientation question. So it should be clear by now that LK is going to reject the Kantian claim that aesthetic norms are directed towards a demand for universal agreement. So in lieu of it, I think that she develops a kind of twofold account of aesthetic norms. So she thinks that there's two different kinds of aesthetic norms that can be orienting us in different ways, although in reciprocally related ways. So the first kind of aesthetic norms that we find her defending are object-directed norms. So these are norms to respond to beauty understood as something that is out there in the world. And the way she puts this is she says that beauty has a, quote, demand character. It presents itself to us in a way that makes a claim on us demanding that we respond to it. So again, when I'm driving through the Massachusetts countryside, right, this like vermilion oak leaf on the ground is placing a demand on me. It's demanding that I respond to it in some sort of way because it is beautiful. So she uses Jonas Cohn's words to make this point in passage six. She's describing an aesthetic judgment. In aesthetic judgment, she says, quote, the individual senses that a standing demand commands the recognition of value beyond her discretion. So some norms are going to be object-directed and beauty-directed norms. But I think that if we really attend to her account of aesthetic illusion, we're going to find that there are subject-directed norms on her view, too, where these are understood in norms of, as norms of aesthetic education. So to be in a position to respond to the beauty of the object, you have to exercise your capacities and have some sort of aesthetic education to be in that right condition to respond as you should. So I think that she's also going to build into her account norms related to aesthetic education. Now what about the source question? So, um, as it says on your handout, two aspects of the source of aesthetic norms and their bendiness, uh, but it should be bindingness, uh, the exact opposite. So I think there's really two features of her account of the source of aesthetic normativity. So first, as we've just seen, she thinks that beauty itself is a source of normative demand. So the fact that something is beautiful 
is binding to us in virtue of the command and the demands that beauty can in fact place on us. But over and above beauty as a source of aesthetic normativity, I think she also characterizes judgment or the practice of judgment as a source of aesthetic normativity for us also. And I think that she's committed to this because judgment, as we've seen, is how she thinks we access beauty, or it's the means by which we're recognizing beauty. So if we want to be able to be responding to beauty, we also need to be able to make judgments about beauty. And so I think that part of her account of aesthetic normativity is going to be connected to the sorts of norms that bind us in the practice of judgment. So then she hints at this in passage 7, where she says, quote, the claim of things to a determinate valuation is nothing other than a demand of a true sense judgment. The claim of values which are to be recognized is not different and has no other origin than the claim of sensory qualities which are to be cognized. So put aside the stuff about sensible qualities here. What she's saying is that the claim of something to be valued can be glossed in terms of the demands to make a true judgment. And as we've seen, right, there's a lot of standards that are built into what it is to make a true judgment on her view. So I think that on her account, it's not just beauty that is the source of aesthetic norms for us. It's in fact the practice of cognition or the practice of making cognitive judgments that exerts normative force on us. So the way that I'm reading her, she is building norms into the cognitive domain, namely the norms connected to making valid judgments. So I think that this account of aesthetic normativity uh, and ultimately avoids the problems of overvaluation because she can put restrictions on how we're supposed to evaluate the object. We're supposed to evaluate it in the way that it calls for, in the way that is appropriate to be responding to it. So beauty is a dispositional property of an object that gives rise to a certain feeling of pleasure or displeasure mm -hmm. in us. That is the appropriate feeling to feel in response to the object. So if I am, I don't know, looking at this oak desk, I don't know, I'm like, wow, look at this, the grain of the wood, it's so amazing, right? Like, I'm, I'm overly enthusiastic. My response is not the one that the lovely desk uh, is calling for. She also avoids the demands, uh, the problems that surround Kant's account with respect to universality. As we've seen, she builds up an account of aesthetic normativity that relates to objects, that relates to aesthetic education, but it drops that demand for um, Kantian universality out of the picture. So ultimately, I think that her cognitivism about aesthetic evaluation and her objectivity about the nature of beauty is something that puts her in a position to develop this account of aesthetic normativity that not only avoids the problems that come up for the hedonist picture and the Kantian picture, but I also think it's subtle in its own right and one worth more consideration. Thank you.